Welcome to the Gregarious Mammal Podcast. Sorry we took a little bit of a break. I was a bit sick, some things got in the way, we had a bit of travel, some interviews we wanted to arrange didn't quite happen, and one thing led to another, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, this is Chris. And this is Kate. And we've got a few topics we're going to talk about. We have an interview with uh, Tal Weiss from Overops halfway through the show, and we'll talk about what we've been up to in kind of tech, people and tech, events and tech, tech and tech. Tech and custard, tech and chips, etc. How's that sound, Kate? Tech and tonic. Tech and tonic. Yes. I think that would be a good idea. Maybe it's a bit early for that, but let's say tech and tea. How about that? Tech and tea. Tech and toast. All right. Anyway, (laughs) let's get started. So my first topic I would like to talk about is um, about Bitcoin, Ethereum, blockchain, etc., etc., and this is quite an interesting one. I mean, there's been lots of talk about interesting use cases mm. of blockchain. And I think this is where the future of it really lies. And one is actually the UN wanting to, and I like the fact that they actually had to make it clear what the UN was in this article. This article on Coindesk, which is a fairly well-known sort of blockchain yeah. newsletter. Um, they are looking at using the Ethereum blockchain to transmit Pakistani rupees to 100 people. So just a small test right now. Uh, and they added some extra security and trialed it. And um, now they are going to try with the World Food Program of moving dinars to about 10,000 recipients in Jordan and hopefully expanding that to half a million in 2018. Can you explain what a dinar is? is it... It's just a currency. Oh, okay. It's the currency. And can you explain why they'd use, they need to use the blockchain for these things? I think a lot of it comes down to the same reasons that people are using it in supply chain and a whole bunch of other things. It's the traceability. So often the issue with transferring money into developing countries or wartime countries is that money doesn't end up mm. where you hope mm. it will. That's and I don't true. necessarily know if this will solve that problem, but I suppose at least it gives a way of tracing the providence and its path. Yeah, uh, I find it quite interesting. Um, what are your thoughts, Kate? Anything yeah, to say? look, I, I, that's why I was asking, I guess, those questions. Um, I'm aware of the blockchain being gradually introduced in um, parts of Africa, along with other conduits for um, bankless payments because there's a large population who don't use banks, partly cultural, partly um, access to banks, but they have mobile phones. Mm. So the idea there is that you can have things like tokens and um, different different means to be able to receive and to um, transfer money. So what it does is it actually enables particularly women to have um, businesses and to have a high degree of financial independence that was not, you know, not really there before. And actually, as you say that, I just came across something in this article that the UN Women has partnered with uh, Innovation Norway um, to make it easier for women and girls to explore blockchain uh, and is hiring consultants at the moment as well. So I think you're right, it's about the uh, openness, the democracy, um, the uh, also reduction of fees as well, and tech cutting out middlemen or middle people, banks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and also, uh, it's talking about donations as well, the ability of obviously mm. for people who donate money to see where it ends up. Which I, and, think um, I think the interesting thing when you think about this, I mean, when we first sort of heard, came into the the idea of the blockchain, the Bitcoin. Um, it was always about the Bitcoin being, you know, another financial, um, I don't know, another form of finance, another form of currency. And 
I've written quite a lot about blockchain being used as different conduits for, um, you know, distributed ledgers and all that sort of stuff. And the idea that it's now being used to transfer money that's not Bitcoins is kind of interesting. It's kind of turning it on its head a bit. Um, that's not new. Yeah. Blockchain for transferring money that isn't Bitcoin. There's heaps of cryptocurrencies. No, that's true. I mean, Bitcoin's only one example. But, I mean, I'm, I guess my, my comment is more perhaps that it may have not been the original purpose when it, the whole thing was set up. I don't know, actually. I think okay. whoever the founder, the creator of blockchain technology were in the first place, I think they had some broader ideas. Yeah, actually. I guess I'm not entirely clear which came first, the blockchain or the Bitcoins. Well, they both came at the same time, That's but one was... This is, this is a conversation I have a lot with people of differentiating the two. Mm. You can think of um, blockchain as the concept of currency and Bitcoin as the euro. Like, just because the euro goes doesn't mean money will go. And it's the same sort of thing. Just because yeah. if Bitcoin fails, that doesn't mean blockchain will fail. In fact, yeah. it's actually a good thing because yeah. it shows you that the technology and the concept is sound. And if uh, a concept can replace its creator, then that's usually a good mm. thing. Mm, absolutely. And now moving to something slightly different, and I see a very hip picture in here, Kate, is an article that you added to our queue. Yeah, this is um, called The Real Problem with Standing Desks According to Evolutionary Psychology by Quartz. And I've never actually tried a standing desk. Uh, being five foot three, most of them are set up for tall people in co-working spaces who tend to kind of, you know, not take too kindly to people adjusting their standing desk. And basically the, the tenet of the article is actually based on psychology and the, the notion that when we stand, we're able to see people um, – see more people and see them clearer, particularly people that, um, you know, are facing us, obviously. This is, you know, based on the assumption you're not facing a wall when you're in a standing desk. Um, so they call it interpersonal effect transmission. It's basically, a, I guess, an unconscious or, in, sorry, unconscious um, affect where you respond to the feelings of other people. And, you know, the idea is if we're standing up, we can see more people and we can see more faces. And therefore we find it very distracting because we tend to, at a, you know, a small unconscious level, mimic or, you know, empathise with those emotions that people are expressing. I'm not sure about this. I'm not entirely sure where the research came from and I can't see any anything that I could see some... Uh, some mentions, but I don't know. I like uh, when I briefly use standing desk. I don't use them that much, to be fair. I generally found that I'm more focused because I'm focusing on posture and standing up, and actually just because it's an unusual thing to do when you're not used to it. And a lot of the people I know who use standing desk also seem to be fairly focused. I don't know. It's an interesting. I, I kind of. I mean, I, I find the 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 description there of seeing people's faces, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Again, I'm not really sure if that's true. Do you? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I buy this article. I guess it's based on the idea that these things are contagious. Like, if you look at the idea of yawning, that we can't not yawn because um, when we see someone yawn, we're going to yawn unconsciously. And I guess where this came about was a psychologist working on a book. Hmm. No surprise. <laughs> uh, you know, we know, we know whenever someone does a book, they're going to do all the. Um, all the publications, and the book um, is actually looking at what motivates people 
So I was looking at things like procrastination, emotions, and success. Um, yeah, look, I, as I said, I don't use one, but I'd be very interested if there's anyone listening who does use one or has tried one and it didn't work. What your thoughts are? Why did you? Why do you like it? Why don't you like it? Yeah. Um, does, do you work better with it? Is it better for certain types of tasks? I have lots of people who don't like standing desk but swear by walking desk, which is a whole other level. See, I, I couldn't do that because um, when when you my head would all my head would be moving basically when but that's because you had bad posture if you held your posture better your head wouldn't move so much yeah but I have bad balance and I have bad eyesight well, so I wouldn't be able to focus on the page I think, I think a lot of these people would say this is a good way of fixing a lot of those Possibly. But, but at the same time a lot of the people I know who use walking desks do actually tend to focus on how much exercise they do yeah. not necessarily um, how much um, how much work they do I don't know <laughs> so, no, you know you can yeah. get little pedal things and devices that you use on your desk while you're working to be exercising to be honest with you I think people have a concentration (laughs) problem at the moment for various reasons and I think people look for excuses and actually maybe you're just a distracted person who's easily distracted by distracting things and I think a lot of time people are looking for excuses to explain it when (laughs) (laughs) you know know, I guess you have to learn yourself what works for you and how you work best all right Next one, um, before our little break. This is quite an epic article that, um, actually, I must admit, I was hoping it would go into more detail. It kind of said things I already knew, but it's been shared around the internet a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the article is from The Observer, which is the Sunday Guardian, or Saturday or the Weekend Guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, the Great British Brexit Robbery, How Our Democracy Was Hijacked. It's... An investigation into Cambridge Analytica, who um, were behind a lot of the Trump campaign and also the Leave campaign, there's all sorts of ties between them and various people involved. And this article, I mean, actually, I didn't necessarily find anything in here that I hadn't heard of already. I have read, maybe just because it made mainstream media, but I have read about Cambridge Analytica before. I knew a lot of this, and maybe I drew my own connections, and this article points them out a bit clearer kind of saying that, in as many words anyway, not explicitly saying that maybe there's actually a little bit of a conspiracy here because um, there's lots of connections between players in various campaigns and um, the company. Various people involved in the campaigns have been board members in this company. The company didn't even really exist until a couple of years ago. And the way, I mean, it's interesting because the way they actually scrape and analyze data and connections between people is quite fascinating and quite amazing. And it's just a shame it's used to such ill. But actually that their, their whole strategy is about um, finding the people to target. So uh, not, I mean, this is one actually, I think it was one comment of, of Trump in his campaign that he didn't actually appear that much. And a lot of that saying is because he didn't need to, because they targeted the people he needed to speak to mm. and needed to appeal to, the ones who were disillusioned and uncertain. And they didn't waste their time talking to the people who it didn't matter. They were already decided. Um, it's, it's an interesting article. As I, say, I kind of wanted to go deeper because, unsurprisingly, a lot of the people that the journalists wanted to interview wouldn't interview. <laughs> so you can only go so far. Um, but, yeah, just the fascinating connections between these people and how just, yeah, this strange kind of alliance between the UK and the US on these issues and then drawing in maybe there's Russia involved, who knows. And it's quite fascinating. Um, yeah, 
It's quite a fascinating article. Uh, I don't really know what to do about it right now. <laughs> but yeah, any thoughts, Kate? Did you have a chance to read this? No? no, I've not read it, but I mean, I've heard this kind of approach described as, um, you know, psychological warfare. Um, well, actually, it comes out of PsyOps as well. Some yeah. of the people in the company come from PsyOps yeah. in, in secret intelligence. What's Well, basically just what you said, psychological warfare, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, I've also, you know, heard about it being, um, you know... A, 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 a predictive analytic approach, which is what they are really, mm. to um, propaganda, you know, a way to make sure that based on research and based on, you know, A-B testing and all sorts of stuff to determine how they reach the people they want, what kind of message they want. I mean, you know, the fact that you've got, um, <laughs> you know, services now and include startups in this offering, hey, we've got a new service. You can um, go on social, we've got a way you can go on social media outside your own bubble of, you know, the people you know and their opinions and their their um, values and preferences and, you know, uh, discriminations or, you know, prejudices, perhaps is a better word, and find out what the other people think. So it's quite it's quite bizarre when you think about it, um, that we need this level of um, differentiation. I mean, the fact that... You know, it's suggesting that we are so far removed from other opinions outside of our own, unless we are approaching them as a, you know, a, a music tool, perhaps in our social media. Yeah, I mean, this is getting to slightly different uh, subject. Right. Um, I think actually the, I think I'd like to pick up on what you said about that we need. I don't, don't think we need them. They're just much more effective than phone mm. canvassing and things. I also find it interesting because in the UK and the US, polling was completely off as well like That's traditional true. polling and then we've just come through the Dutch and the French elections mm. just as we record now we now know the outcome of the French elections mm. and in both of those situations the polling was actually pretty accurate That's right. so I don't know if there's something inherently flawed in the way that Britain and America polls things um, yeah it's, it's interesting because so far like the French polling was almost almost spot on yeah that's true so, I know. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. All right. On the notes of uh, kind of handling complex, big applications, uh, next we have an interview with uh, Tal Weiss. Tal Weiss, I'm not 100% sure. Tal <laughs> from Overops. I met Overops when I was back in Tel Aviv, uh, although they also mostly operate out of the US. Uh, they are a very sort of deep tech company providing... Um, error logging and um, stack tracing, full stack tracing for any Java VM, so JVM-based applications. Uh, and they just raised $30 million to grow their business. Um, and so I spoke to Tal about that, about the complexities of their problem, how they do it, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll join you after that interview. Very simply, we tell um, companies when where and why their code breaks in production uh our technology is able to and let me know by the way how deep you want him to go like how cool i don't want to want to make sure i'm talking to the right audience um we automatically um detect um and capture the complete source code and variable state five levels deep into the heap behind any air 
in staging a production. And what that means is that we make any air essentially automatically reproducible instead of folks having to hear about issues from their customers, from their ops teams, from the support, from their support teams and have to spend hours, sometimes even days and more doing this back and forth grepping, sifting, regexing, and dumpster diving through massive amounts of log data, here they can automatically, the second something breaks, something new is introduced, they get an automatic push notification through chat ops, through Slack or HipChat, or even as a Jira ticket, that with one click, they can see, again, the complete source code. They can be variable state. A thousand times more variable state information that they would ever get through a log file See, the complete state of the JVM, everything they would ever need to reproduce and fix that issue is now automatically delivered to them in both traditional monolithic environments and then in the most web-scale microservice uh, modern um, environment. And that has enabled close to 300 of our customers, including companies like Comcast, Fox, Nielsen, TripAdvisor, Zynga, some of the world's largest uh, banks and healthcare companies to reduce the time it takes them to detect and resolve critical issues and to ship new software to the market uh, by orders of magnitude. So um, why and when did uh, did OverOps begin? What was the, the reasoning and, and the, the story behind it? For sure. So as a, as a kind of founding core team, OverOps um, is kind of our second company as a group, as my second company's entrepreneur. And the first one was um, – it was in a completely different space, like computer, like like computer aided design in the cloud. You could not, it, you could not be any more different. Uh, but it was a very the company did well. It was backed by good folks and was acquired by Autodesk and became um, what was what is now known AutoCAD Web and Mobile. AutoCAD is a very very big product within that space, and we essentially kind of took that and put that into the cloud and made that accessible through the web and through mobile. And that became a really big success for the company. Uh, It was actually through the challenges and the pain points and the trials and tribulations of trying to scale that service. By the time that we had left, we had up close to 20 million professional designers and engineers using that worldwide. So it became kind of the de facto standard for mobile design and computing. And what we found out was what we found out was that whenever our software would break in staging and production, because we'd be changing it continuously, you know, we'd be deploying, releasing new features, new value to, you know, our customers, our partners, you know, uh, prospects, other groups and divisions within the company. So we'd be shipping all that code all the time and it would break continuously. It would always break, you know, and the challenge was that on the on one hand, you really want to innovate and push the envelope and do new things. But on the other hand, because this is AutoCAD, this is the gold standard within that industry, it needs to always, always, always work. It must provide the highest levels of reliability and fidelity because our customers are like using it to like design nuclear power plants, you know, in France and doing mines in Brazil, building a four billion dollar like Disneyland theme park in Shanghai. And what we found out to really get to your question, that whenever our software would break, 
our best people would still have to sit down and sift through massive amounts of log data for days and hours on end in search of a cause, in search of the cause. And I remember I had this breaking moment that I remember I had a bunch of my guys sitting in front of this like big flat screen TV where we're like projecting the logs. And I felt like, you know, this is like doctors looking at x-rays from the 50s, you know, trying to figure out, is this little blob on the screen? Is that a fly that just, you know, kind of flew through the x-ray? Or do we have to gather the family and we have some bad news? You know, I said, you know what? I don't want an x-ray. I want a 3D MRI. I want to have the ability to look at any air, everything, be able to zoom in and see the source code, the variable state, all the things we're working so hard to reproduce. I want to see that with one click. Or I want to be able to zoom out and see exactly what's important, what's critical, what's benign across millions or billions of these log statements without having to emit, transport, manage, regex, and sift through massive amounts of text. So that was kind of the genesis. And we said, you know what? This is what we want to do. And so what uh, I guess it was you started with uh, JVM-based applications, I suppose, firstly, because it's a big market. But I'm assuming that the, the software you were creating when you came up with the idea was probably also JVM-based. Um, and do you have any plans to extend outside of JVM-based uh, applications in the future? Absolutely. And and, and uh, I, I can give you kind of the full reason. So I'm, I'm going to uh, – let me give you the full reason actually why we went to JVM and then how that actually relates and contributes to our plan of extending uh, beyond that. The reason why we went for it, we had a number of reasons as to why we decided to start with the JVM. Naturally, within you know, large companies and the enterprise, of course, it's probably from the, all the market research that we've done and then what was valid over the years, it's, it's by far kind of the, the biggest language in terms of code footprint. I'm not saying it's the best one. I'm not saying it's the coolest one. You know, I'm just you know, factually saying it has the largest footprint. But we also saw uh, a couple of three, uh, a couple of, Characteristics have made it really interesting for us. First of all, the JVM supports a slew of different languages like Java and Scala and Groovy and Clojure. So immediately we will make our architecture not just dependent on like one programming languages because by supporting JVM, naturally you want to support all these different um, programming languages and put the groundwork in to then support ones that don't necessarily run on the JVM. That was kind of the first reason. The second reason, we said this is the most complex software virtual machine out there on the market. It's, it's, it has like thousands of engineering manuals have been put into it over the last you know quarter of a century. So if we can work on that, if we can support that, in all likelihood, we'll be able to support probably everything else that's kind of come our way, if you will. We said, you know, let's tackle the beast. Because we didn't want to be a company where we said, you know what, we're going to uh, come in and we're going to support Ruby MRI, you know, or C Python from the, uh, C Python from the get-go. And then when we try to scale it up to the JV, we said, well, you know what, like half of our assumptions, you know, don't actually scale or no, can be proven. And the last thing was uh, compare that to something like the .NET CLR. It was open source. Now, today, the .NET CLR is also open source. 
but back then, I don't think it, it, it was. They were just starting to do it, and we want to say, you know, I want to be able to see what I'm working with. And now, to your question, that has enabled us to put in the groundwork that now we're actively working on .NET and the .NET CLR to be uh, released this year. And I think the third one following that, we're seeing, we're hearing a lot of good things about like Node.js from what we're seeing in our customers. So I think uh, that can be number three, but um, .NET is coming out this year. And the last financing round that we've just recently announced uh, is also something that's putting a lot of wind in our sails with respect to our ability to do that. Well, that, that's very good timing. So, yes, uh, <laughs> one of the reasons we've decided to have a chat now is that you have uh, just closed your Series C round. So you've you've you, you're sort of reasonably in down the path of uh, of uh, fundraising um, and raised uh, thirty million. Uh, Lightspeed Venture Partners, who, if anyone has ever kind of looked at any kind of VC. Uh, funding statements it's a reasonably well-known one um and that brings up uh funding to date to 52 million so this is obviously a big chunk of that that's nearly half of of your uh funding in total uh oh yeah sorry yeah more than half not less than half yeah (laughs) so yes that's a very good point so um what else do you plan to do with that um and obviously engineers are reasonably expensive so some of those features you've you've already talked about will probably come come out of a a fair chunk of that but uh, what else do you plan on doing with the business with that extra kind of headroom the the funding gives you for sure so i'm going to start with the uh Less interesting, less interesting stuff. And I can move on to the more interesting stuff. So, on the quote-unquote less interesting stuff, of course, we're just expanding the sales teams in the different geos. You know, uh, working in the you know, west coast to east coast to Midwest, to then you know, uh, doing stuff, beginning to do work in Europe as well, because just the, the demand is there. So naturally, that's uh, just this go-to-market. You know, is just a natural part of the evolution of the scale of the company and then on the other hand so that was the kind of less interesting stuff if you will and from the technology from the product standpoint okay which i'm very passionate about i would say we're going to be moving really kind of in in three there's kind of three things we want to work on well one is really one is really kind of you know cable sticks just continuously improving the core experience of the product, adding more features, more capabilities, more integrations, right? Naturally, but that's just table sticks. The the product is continuously evolving and we kind of try to uh, practice what we preach and we kind of ship on a weekly basis. So every week we're shipping new features, new fixes. But that again to me is table sticks. Like your company must always be working really hard on its core product. And then the two other things that are kind of more strategic, one of them we've already kind of slightly touched on, which is just broadening the aperture. Like up until now, we've been really focused, just like nailing down the JVM. Now we have more resources and we can really expand the engineering teams and everything that's uh, required to uh, broaden that, that broaden that aperture into languages like .NET this year and like Node are early um, next year. So that is um, one thing. And the third one, because I'm, I'm moving from kind of the least interesting to the most interesting. The third one is you know also beginning to look at diff- at other use cases beyond just you know straight DevOps because 
what makes overops um, unique is its ability to, unlike something like a straight log analyzer, just uh, parses, you know, text files. Um, and let me, by the way, is there any noise behind me? Uh, I, I, I hear some noise behind me in the background. So are you still good from your end? I, I don't hear anything. I mean, um, I've actually got some in, in my background, but it's all right. It's, it's fine. <laughs> just wanted to make sure I'm not introducing any static. So most interesting, going back to the most interesting stuff is if you look at something like a traditional like log analytics solution, like a Splunk or like an Elasticsearch, what they do is they essentially parse and index the textual output that an application emits. It takes the log data and just ingests and indexes that without understanding whether or not the information that it's indexing, it's something that's coming out of a mission critical application or whether or not it's just ingesting the complete works of William Shakespeare. It's just, it's just text. What overops is, uh, what makes overops different is that overops doesn't index the textual, the unstructured textual output that's emitted by the application. It actually indexes the code that's running live in staging of production. It analyzes, indexes the actual code, developing a super deep understanding of the DNA, the genome of the application as it is mutating as a live organ, what's continuing changing, being redeployed. Organs go up, organs go down, right? Because it's elastic and new code is being deployed. It analyzes the code that's being deployed and it's executing. So it's understanding not what, just what the application does. Here, I've given you a bunch of text statements. It's, it understands why it's doing it. Why that air, what uh, state come about. And it's there in real time. You operate between the software virtual machine and the processor. And that enables us to understand, exact, to intercept these events as they are happening and have a deeper understanding as to why they're happening and as a result of that, have the ability to optimize them. So for example, with the core product, oh, you, you've just introduced a new error. How do I even know that it's new? Because I've been tracking how the code is mutating and I know this new code that's encountering this for the first time to share the developer all the variable state all the um, so that enables you to optimize the data but then you can say things like you know maybe I can optimize data for things around like security maybe if somebody's doing like you know uh, a SQL injection you know or cross-site scripting for example maybe I can optimize the code to show you exactly why and how that happened versus just giving you output into a log file that's up to you to search and register through. Or- sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've come across um, some other products that do just that aspect. Um, so I guess combining a couple of those together is, is a fairly compelling uh, service and package. Um just, just on the subject of expanding to other use cases, I noticed kind of uh, 
on the um, the bullet points of of some of the things you've already added over the past twelve months, there were elements like uh, hybrid hosting capabilities and also microservice and container kind of based infrastructures. Obviously, those are three very uh, common and increasingly popular infrastructures at the moment. And were there any particular challenges you had there, and especially as um, distributed applications generally are hard? And I'm wondering, is is logging um, and uh, analyzing problems that go wrong across distributed applications equally as hard for a company like yourself? For sure. So um, one of the biggest investments that we've made this year from an engineering standpoint is to bring is to um, deliver a full, uh, you know, moving from SaaS only to SaaS hybrid and on-premise while delivering full feature parity behind all three. So with one click, essentially uh, build three complete, very different uh, code bases. And that's something that many companies are, have struggled with or have not even tried to achieve. Some companies say, well, we're only on-premise or a lot of time you see companies that even companies that have been successful in the past say, well, we're only in the cloud. So for us to but the most successful companies out there, if you look at companies like Splunk or like Abdynax that was founded by um, Lightspeed, they were funded by Lightspeed. So just talking more about um, expanding use cases and uh, into new new uses that people are making from their applications. One of the things I note that you've been working on the past 12 months is making OverOps work with uh, different sorts of infrastructure. So hybrid hosting, i.e. kind of cross data centers, cross providers, but also a microservice and container support. Uh, distributed applications are obviously hard, uh, hard to program and hard to maintain, but I would imagine they're also quite hard to to run the kind of platform that you have over as well. So I'd be interested to hear some of the complexities you had dealing with those. For sure. So um, naturally, you know, moving from this monolithic architecture, we have like just like this one, you know, JVM or like a, a few JVMs, each of them kind of its own, like you know, cathedral. Um, to these architectures where everything is much more elastic. Transactions uh, span multiple threads, multiple um, nodes. They cross storage and persistence boundaries. Um, And the fact that these applications are also um, much more um, dynamic in the way by which they evolve and are continuously deployed. So they're continuously changing all the time. So you may have a cluster that's running, you know, slightly varying versions of the code as it's being deployed at the same time. All these things add a lot of complexity, and those are some of the things that we've worked really hard on over the last um, 12 to 18 months to be able to support those things, to be able to support applications that are continuously deployed, to support these very elastic uh, workload. The fact that you know, uh, nodes may go up and go down um, in a blink of an eye. And also... With the ability to track um, deep application state across um, multiple boundaries, and actually, we're releasing this quarter. We're actually releasing something pretty uh, powerful. Uh, I'm not going to kind of we call it like uh, micro logging, which is actually the ability to track the complete source code, the complete variable state 
of uh, a distributed workflow in the same way that we do in OverOps today, you know, but the, be able to scale that across an infinite number of uh, microservices and boundaries. So this is definitely, I would say, kind of the new frontier, if you will, for um, monitoring in general, the, the ability to deal and to support these radically changing, continuously evolving, continuously deployed uh, asynchronous um, architectures. And that is also going back to what I kind of talked about in my previous answers. One of the things that we'll be applying some good capital that you've just raised to really double down on those use cases, because that is truly where the pain is at right now for a lot of uh, modern web scale companies. It's, it's quite amazing, despite all the uh, the features and functionality that OverOps has and, and will have again in, in more in the future. I can't – oh, here we go. I can find it, yeah. You add just 1% CPU uh, and very little network overhead. No specified numbers, but, but very few. Um, and, I mean, without going into detail because you probably don't want to, <laughs> how – how how did you do that? Uh, just in, in the, as much detail as you could you could say. <laughs> For sure. Um, so this goes back to kind of uh, what is the key differentiator between us and other um, kinds of technologies that have been um, around, which is instead of trying to kind of just deal with the output, you know, just parse all that log data. We actually, what we do is we kind of extend the power of the local, of the local software virtual machine, you know, be it the JVM or the .NET CLR, you know, and into what we call a master VM, a CVM, a cloud virtual machine, something that enables us to analyze the code that's being run in staging and production across the entire cluster in real time. And that ability to analyze and to understand the code and having the ability to do that not locally where we'll be essentially adding overhead to the uh, production node by doing that um, outside of the proper production environment, if you will, enables us to offload tremendous amounts of the virtualization work, if you will, of the code. Essentially, if you look at a software virtual machine like the JVM or the .NET CLR, right, all the work that they're doing they're doing it locally, which means every CPU cycle that the JVM you know, takes for itself is it's a zero-sum game. It, it's, it, it's directly taken away from that which is available to the application, which really limits the power of the, soft, of the local software virtual machine. By taking that load outside into the cloud, be it a private cloud or a public cloud like AWS – gives you the ability to offload, again, that performance overhead, but also to be able to see the code at a macro level, which really goes back to how you support microservices, distributed transactions, because you're no longer looking at the code. It's just what's running locally on this JVM or on this node, but holistically, what's running across the entire cluster. And that gives you kind of those superpowers to... Uh, optimize the application at such a low performance overhead so is there a does that mean there's a slight kind of delay in identifying problems um it's not completely instantaneous so what the technology does is um 
it's, it's a learning system. So what it will do, the first time it encounters a problem and it has not had the chance to analyze it just yet, you know, it will give you kind of a basic analysis of it. And then in a matter of seconds, because that's usually how long it takes, the system can react in like seconds, it will then, you know, send that over to, for optimization and, and analysis. And then, you know, the node will be then dynamically optimized to give you better and ever-increasing um results so i would say this the system is a learning system so it will not be maybe as efficient or will not be give you the best optimal kind of data the first time but in a matter of five or ten seconds it will begin to optimize itself and begin to give you better and better um answers for it which is really similar to how a normal software virtual machine works if you took if you take if you take a look at like how this how, how the java virtual machine works Initially, when it executes code, it does so in a very kind of naive manner. And then as it learns more and more about the code, because the software, because the JVM itself is a learning machine, it begins to optimize, to dynamically compile it, to do these all these dynamic optimizations. And essentially, we follow suit because essentially we, we essentially kind of apply those same set of principles of dynamically optimizing and learning. So to give increasingly better results. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Cool. I mean, it's a, it's a super interesting piece of technology. Um, I guess just to round off, can you give me a um, uh, an example of a client kind of story where, by using Overops, they really solved a major a major issue they were having and really helped kind of their workflow. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't need to go any further. I you know I could go like to, to go to overop.com slash customers. You know, you can see, for example, you no know, TripAdvisor. You know, we've been able to help them, you know, turn days of work, you know, into literally like minutes. You know, they spoke last year at QCon, you know, how they've been able to dramatically reduce the time it took them to detect and resolve critical issues in a PCI level one compliant environment you know, that's highly elastic in the cloud and essentially, again, enable them to move from being reactive to knowing exactly when, where, and why code breaks and have the ability to fix that and kind of fail forward in real time. So that's just like one example. Uh, You can, if I look at companies, you know, like Fox, you know, and again, helping them um, reduce time to... um, Fix critical issues, taking them down from days and hours down to minutes and sometimes, you know, just completely immediate. Same thing with companies like Nielsen or Zynga or Vivint or Cotivity or Comcast and major banks in healthcare. So we've been very um, happy with how we've been able to um, help all these really, really big companies just do better and deliver better experiences for their customers actually one final question because i meant to ask it earlier and it slipped okay, my mind well, but now it's come back, back. Um, do you use overops um, when developing overops not only do we use overops extensively when we actually demo the product to folks we always show them look we're going to show you how we at overops Use overops you know, to operate overops. Sorry, the, uh, for the pun. Sort of you know, we never show folks. Well, here's a little 
everything. Shopping cart, <laughs> application, cookie cutter, hello world kind of thing, you know. You actually should know this is how we do it. And this is how it's helped us. You know, of course, this is how it's also helped us. Uh, some of our other uh, customers, but that's the only way. And I think any other vendor who does not base their workflow on the tool that they are delivering to the market is really, you know, I don't think it's not being fully authentic. So, probably by the tool. I think that's always the best place to, the best way to be. A lot of companies who do don't, then when they have a hackathon or something and they actually use their own tools, they're like, oh, Okay, <laughs> and learn quite a lot of the experience. So, yeah, I think it's always a good one to do. Because I've actually created and worked on a few online course materials, and I'm always a little uncertain quite how successful they are. Um, I've always sort of wondered if these online schools for teaching coding and things like that are really as effective as they are, and mm. overpromise what they're going to deliver and things like that. Um, and this is a sort of a, a couple of perspectives on, on, on this. Not, not quite what I talked about, but it feeds into it a bit. And this is more that um, massive open online courses, things like Coursera um, and Udacity, edX, mm-hmm. um, things like that, that when the, most of them started, they were free. They received some funding or what have you to help with that, and they were free. And gradually and slowly, a lot of this has gone. Um, a lot of the dream and the ideal, idealization, that's a word, of making, uh, democratizing education and bringing it online and moving it out of the hallowed halls of $20,000 um, universities is somewhat being chipped away. And they're having to, they're actually struggling a bit and trying to introduce costs at how successful will they be. Um, yeah, and each provide this is an article on Freenode Camp on Medium. It's quite interesting. It goes into detail about what they used to do and the kind of business model they're now offering and the, and the problems they had. Um, and again, the ones that are backed by traditional universities have a bit more flexibility. And these tend to be very well-known universities. So um, they have credibility anyway, and this is often the issue. And other people would also say that sometimes these universities are basically using them as like tasters or marketing yeah. for their courses. And basically, with those ones, the the, the way they make monet they make, the way they monetize is that you actually get an accredited qualification. And with the free ones, you usually just get the knowledge. Um, whether you consider that worth it or not is is up to you. But Kate, what do you think about this? Yeah, I've seen when I worked in education, this was just coming in, this whole school of thought. And really, for a big university, they're a marketing tool. They're a sort of get your feet wet. Um, we'll give you a slightly generalist course. Uh, it will give you some knowledge, of course, but if you want a qualification at, at this time, it was if you want a, um, you know, a professionally recognised um, certificate or something like that. And by this, I mean a course... Inherent in that is is a course that's been um, planned. Um, the deliverables are very well executed. Um, it has online support and, and tutors. It has group discussions. It has ways to contact each other. Of course, tech, tech has got made this easier. But really, what what they're offering in those kind of courses is 
a taster of a professional experience. There's a few things I'd say about this kind of stuff. I mean, firstly, I think people grossly underestimate how difficult it is to study online. It's not only the motivation factor and the time factor, but it's also um, we learn in different ways. And most people find, particularly if they're learning something new, which, you know, language, learning tech is a new language. Learning a, you know, a language language is a new language. Um, to give you an example, I know how many people come to Germany here and, and say, oh, I've got a phone app to learn Deutsch, you know, so I just use that. And if you go and do a class once a week, even once a week or twice a week, you will pick up tenfold in two or three weeks than what you would do on the, on the app. And one of the reasons there is the apps are so painfully boring. <laughs> There's a, the way they teach is repetition largely, so they get really dull. Um, I think a lot of it's motivation as well. When you're forced to go somewhere for a couple of hours a week, mm. you, you time box it. Whereas an actor yeah. is like, oh, I'll do it in five minutes. Yeah, and I think as well with these, it, the, the bigger issue that comes out for me is, again, as someone who's worked in universities, there's a real nexus between the university qualification in tech and the real life, real life workplace experience in tech, and whether it, I guess the thing I've heard said a lot, and I agree with this, and I include my work in this as well. Anyone in tech, in any capacity working in tech, you are going to be learning forever. It's not like you go to university for four years or three years and you're done. You will be learning constantly. What a university can do is give you a very good framework. It not only teaches you sort of your basics, but how to learn, different strategies for learning and all that sort of stuff, discipline, motivation, blah, blah, blah. Um, and... Most, you know, every workplace, and I think anyone knows this, who's, not, who's worked for someone besides themselves, even for freelancers, of course, every workplace has their own way of doing things. They have their own preferred programs and protocols and all sorts of stuff. So can a course teach you enough? Like if I go and do a, I don't know, a C-plus course or a Java course and, and then I go and I start applying for jobs, am I going to get a job? How much are these courses selling the expectation that you will get a degree from them, or sorry, you'll get a, you'll get a job from them? Mm. I think I think one of the selling points for a lot of these in the first place was that actually in a lot of the world, having a degree qualification isn't, doesn't mean as much as it used to. That's right. Um, and actually, if you can be motivated enough just to learn the knowledge, especially in tech, where there's a lot of demand for people who mm. know what they're doing, does it matter? Does it matter if you've got a qualification? If you know the if you know the subject, a, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's actually a really good issue, and it may be something we can talk about further on another episode, <clears throat> because it is something I see also with writing, like tech journalism or any type of journalism. Of course, this idea that people come in and they want they do a journalism degree and they want to get a job as a journalist, quote unquote. Um, and there's a there's a whole school of issues around that, and. It's interesting because I think this is fundamentally changing the way we work um, in jobs. And in a similar vein, and this is something I think is actually, uh, well, I have my own feelings on it. We'll come to it in a minute. This is another article from Quartz, strangely. We both seem to have been on there this week hmm. um, about states. So I guess this is uh, talking about the US, but actually I have heard of this happening in other places. Moving to cut college costs by introducing open source textbooks. Now, I studied computer science, and I studied computer science in the early 2000s, 
and I bought all the textbooks I was recommended in the first year and never used them and didn't bother again. Never. No. Even even when I was at university 12 years ago, I didn't really need textbooks on a computer science program. I could find most of what I needed either in a library or online, even then. So I would think now that's even more the case. Mm. Obviously, you start to have issues around quality and things like that. But... Um, I mean, if we consider open source textbooks to be something like Wikipedia, and Wikipedia has its own issues, hmm. then uh, the peer review process would hopefully mean that, in some respects, actually, I would say open source textbooks could be better than closed source textbooks. Because yeah. closed source textbooks are just the opinions of two or three people, and can be biased. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I think, I mean, I even remember, I mean, you can look on a, a chart here on on this article about how expensive textbooks are. Uh, I actually just uh, released a book myself we'll come to in a minute and I was actually this is not a textbook but it's a tech book and I was frankly surprised how expensive it was. Um, These sorts of books are still very expensive. Um, The process of making them I guess is costly but it adds a lot of cost on to a student's life who already in lots of parts of the world are paying lots of money. So I find it an interesting idea and it's interesting that it's coming from the uh, colleges, not the mm, students. Actually, mm. um, what do you think, hey? Yeah, it's um, it's a good it's a good issue to have fleshed out. I mean, if I can talk to the other side of it, my I worked and studied in humanities, I did criminology and sociology. Um, when I was a bit younger, I did creative writing and English and that sort of stuff, literature. These are not <laughs> prestigious courses in terms of financial remuneration. Uh, we're in an era of education where the idea of a tenured employment role where people can work and job for life is not there. Most academics these days, and that I, I include, you know, with the preface, those that are left um, are not being replaced. They're um, being in situations of working casually or on contracts. And for, for most of them, a textbook was a big part of their income. So it was in, it was inevitable that if I was to do a course on, say, youth criminality, that the, um, the, the leading youth crime researcher, who was basically the university, would be, you know, we would be using his textbook. That was inevitable. It didn't mean you couldn't criticise it or you couldn't, you know, pull apart or critically analyse it. But it meant that for them it was also an income. And I think that's um, that's an important part of it that sort of gets missed with maybe some of these things. Yeah, it's true. Um, I think it is it's one this, – this paying creators is one aspect that comes up a lot. One thing in this article is they're talking about giving people mini-grants for – Helping yeah. contribute to these books, but actually looking at the the amount, it's yeah. not a tremendous amount. I mean, no. You don't make much as a book writer, no, no. but no. still, it's not a massive amount. And I think, I mean, this is a much wider topic, but this issue of with with knowledge becoming freer to access, giving it still giving it value and worth, and encouraging people to to consider that. I don't know. It's and but at the same time, I think this is an extreme case because there was a statistic here of saying that since 1978. The cost of textbooks has risen eight hundred and twelve percent, outpacing the cost of medical services and housing. Not um, so I think I think you know whilst we could talk about the worth of creativity and knowledge, I think in this case 
that people are being overcharged. <laughs> I'd add one sort of extra to that. I mean, you know, we're in an era, like I referred to earlier, the lifelong learning, where people's learning extends past university. The problem there is once you finish university, there's many publications, unless you're a um, registered professional, like a doctor or something, you can't get access to without paying a substantial amount per, per um, article. And, you know, this is a trend we see in, in both research and media the idea of the paywall. Mm. So, you know, I think there's other ways that people are looking at this and they're not always a good thing. Open journals is another interesting subject to look into. definitely. Okay, here's a final article for the episode, Kate. Um, And, yeah, what is it? Yeah, this is... um, The article is on first round. It's why chefs and soldiers make the best project managers. Product managers. Sorry, product managers. Which is a fundamental difference, actually. I do apologise. But it's basically based on the idea that, um, and I'll read this quote, both the military and professional kitchens are environments where there's zero tolerance for slackers and indecision. You have to be on all the time, working quickly under high pressure. So the idea there is that, you know, around this whole article is that you don't have to be a tech, you know, a savvy person to get into these roles. You need to be someone who can compartmentalise, who can think on their feet, who can critically think, who can plan, who can monitor. It's more about the attributes of the person and the skills of the person. This is actually something I've always uh, believed in myself and I've always tried to encourage people who I feel have got a bit stuck in a job and feel like their skills are only applicable in one place and say... Well, actually, you know this, you know this, this is accessible here, this is valid there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, I mean, I guess especially for people who are ex-military, that's often, I mean, there's a harder aspect there because it's such a way of life and you come out of it and it can be very hard to rejoin the normal world. Mm. I would also wonder how how hard it would be to get people to accept you as well. I would imagine with some of these companies who mm. wouldn't want ex-military either because yeah. they would think they might be too officious or too full-on or something. Um, and then being a chef, I mean, a chef is it's obviously going through a cool period, but it's still very long hours and very hard work. It's and really there might hard. come a time when you feel like a change. Actually, I suppose that's an interesting aspect of this. Both those jobs are extremely high stamina jobs. Mm. So you could be very good as a founder because mm. you like you probably think nothing of working 15 hour days. No. Yeah. <laughs> so. But I mean, it's not only being, you know, having to be a CEO or a founder. And I get a bit tired of mm. the notion, like, mm. I see this in a lot of women in tech stuff, that the only roles you can have in tech and be successful are founders of startups or programmers. There's a hell of a lot of other roles. And, I mean, there's a really nice checklist in the article of one of the people they interviewed talking about the kind of attributes that the person needs. Or, the, you know, he's saying things like being able to lead without authority, always taking the blame while giving credit away, strong decision-making with imperfect information, valuing intense preparation, being methodical in how you recover from mistakes and crises, and optimize, oh, sorry, operating optimally, that's a mouthful, under extreme pressure. So it's really about th- those having those transferable skills. And I know Chris mentioned the um, people transitioning from the military. There is actually a few startups now that are hmm. set up for people in that situation because they recognised there was a hell of a lot of you know, really good skills that could be used in tech. I think actually this could also apply to police, uh, other emergency service Absolutely. workers, like you know, their ability they have to not judge 
and assess a situation calmly and react to it appropriately, I think is a skill that a lot of people could know better. We do have a tendency in this day and age, especially, to uh, overreact and over-emotionalise things. And I think sometimes that's constructive and sometimes it isn't. And knowing though when one is appropriate and not is actually quite a hard skill. And I think people from those sorts of professions who are very used to just being very balanced and very pragmatic in tough situations actually have a lot of benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. All right. That's our episode. We always round up the episode with talking about what we have been up to the past week. I think in this case, past couple of weeks. So, Kate, what have you been up to? What have you been writing about? What's on the horizon? It's been really busy the last couple of weeks. Um, I know a lot of our content this week has been about the workplace and the workforce and work and education, but we've actually been working on some stuff completely in another realm. Um, I'm doing some writing at the moment for a dating website, a new dating platform, um, which has got its own bizarre peculiarities. Their main MVP is that they... um, are aiming at people their love of travel, your digital nomads, your um, expats, your people that travel regularly for work. Uh, it's you know still in stealth mode. They haven't, i.e., hasn't been done yet. <laughs> um, but you know that'll be something that'll be coming out, and it'd be interesting to have some conversations about um, this kind of tech and tech behind it because it's been quite interesting particularly in Berlin, where Berlin is like almost the capital of dating sites. There are so many. It's all blockchain and dating sites here for some reason. I'm sure we could connect the two. If no matter how I'm sure there's, there's already a conduit that they're connecting up. Chucking some machine learning as well. We're on to a million. There you go. But, um, yeah, I, I've been busy with um, the last weekend just passed. We um, participated in the Unicorns in Tech Conference. Uh, the, name, the name of it is to... to started with the idea that there can't be queer people, gay people, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people in tech. It must be a myth, like the whole unicorn thing. Um, so they set up this conference and they said, and they do, you know, lots of other little events as well. They said, we're going to do a conference, we're going to get people to come along and talk about tech. Queer people and allies are welcome, everyone's welcome, and we want people to, um, you know, talk about all the issues around. It could, it could be about your experiences in tech as a queer person. Maybe you're in a big workplace that has some type of amazing mentoring or something, or you've had a problem that you've resolved or whatever. Or conversely, you just happen to, to be, you know, um, queer and whatever definition you want to define yourself or your gender identity and um, thus you decide to you know get involved in this conference and I put forward something that I thought would be interesting which was um, a presentation on sex tech so technology and sex and the intersection there looking at a range of different things uh, from, you know, where it's come from, where it's going, uh, a bit about that trajectory and why, particularly focusing on the latter stages of that. So, you know, from your, your 2000s plus, so things like Internet of Things, wearable products, VR porn. Um, of course, you can't mention sex tech without mentioning sex robots. And more recently, the... Um, foray into AR or AI, sorry, and machine learning where uh, we now have algorithms and predictive analytics that can actually get us to know what our body is like sexually and why and how we can um, best meet those needs. So, yeah, look, it's a massive topic. You could, I could talk about sex 
tech every day. I um, was actually writing something up on it yesterday and fell in this massive wormhole looking at patents and, and sex tech and the fact that there was someone who actually um, started lawsuits against all the people making connected pleasure products, otherwise known as, you know, IoT embedded um, libraries because they said any uh, any sex toy that's used over the internet, I have copyright for. <laughs> I've got the patent, so you can't use it. Uh, it was a massive thing. They even tried to sue um, Kickstarter over this because Kickstarter, of course, was the conduit for funding all of these products. All right. <laughs> Once um, that article goes out, I'll um, certainly... Mine's going to seem very dry in comparison. Um, No, it isn't. Yeah, you know. I think I'm a little, again, I'm a little behind on... on, I could never quite remember what I've mentioned before. Um, I wrote an introduction to speech synthesis markup language, which is used a lot now in chatbots and Mm -hmm. things like that, which is quite interesting. I covered OpenBack, a notification platform for mobile app developers, and... Uh, being motivated after a particularly bad presentation, I have written part one of A Developer's Guide to Better Presentations, and this talks about stagecraft. Was that a bad presentation of yours? No, 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 no. Someone else's. <laughs> so you, you mean by hearing someone else's bad Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and also I have wrote a little summary of changes at Docker. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming out very soon, I have an article on creating your own chatbot in Slack. Um, and this week, I am mostly, this is a reference to any fast show fans out there. Anyway, this week, I am in Bucharest giving a talk at the iTake conference. Um, and you can also read my roundup of the unit festival from yesterday, uh, from Saturday, uh, publishing pretty soon too. And to top all that off, my big thing is the responsive web design book I have been working on for quite a while has finally out. So go and buy it on sitepoint.com. We'll put links in the show notes. And that was quite an undertaking. Um, But, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes these things are a bit of a declimax. I don't know. You expect kind of more. But anyway. Yeah, I do do offer Chris a party. We could get some people around, get some news. Well, that's pretty much any event in Berlin. But, you know, (laughs) Chris is like, well, what? And just have the the book sitting there. Have you got a copy of the book? It's coming. It's it's in the post. Okay, there you go. It's in the post. But it's Um, coming from Australia, to be fair. (laughs) One other piece of news I have, some very good news. I've got another job, not a, you know, a separate job. Um, or a new job in its own entirety, but an extra job <laughs> because you know, freelance journalists we always do bits and pieces here and there. Um, for design, doing the IoT mobile, sorry, the IoT channel. So I'll be bringing you lots of different weird and wonderful IoT because clearly it's not enough on the internet, and you know, I'm the person who reads and thinks about it and makes jokes with people about it. Um, I've also got coming up a, a really interesting um, article. For ReadWrite that I have to finish transcribing, where I interviewed six VCs about funding IT and where they're looking at putting their funds and why and what they're focused on. And it really was interesting because it really challenged some of the myths and the ideas that we have about um, venture capital and the idea of how you, as a startup, say, or you know, a self-entrepreneur, are able to meet these people and connect with them. And, you know, do you go into a, an accelerator program? Do you go to pitch events, do you build your networks independently? 
what works and why. And there were some really different opinions um, across the whole um, gamut of people I interviewed, from people in um, Silicon Valley, most of them were in Silicon Valley, to people who um, were in Shenzhen, building hardware, um, venture capital there, to people who were focusing on Europe. So it's super interesting, and um, as soon as that comes out, we're going to talk about that in more detail on, um, on the show. Excellent. Well, that's another episode in the bag. Whoa. And the bag's in the river, and it's floating downstream. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if, you have enjoyed our, if you have enjoyed our ramblings, then you can find previous episodes on gregariousmammal.com slash podcast. If you have especially enjoyed the show, please rate us on wherever you listen to us or visit gregariousmammal.com slash support. Give us a donation, buy some merchandise. Um, and come on the show. Get involved. Come exactly. on the show. Send us an email. Give us some content suggestions. Yeah. We would like to hear from you because otherwise we just pick them out ourselves. And I have been Chris Ward, which is at Chris Chinch on Twitter and many other places. And I've been Kate Lawrence. Kate with a C underscore Lawrence with an L A W R E N C E. I have to think about that. <laughs> oh man, that's a hard Twitter. That's a super hard. Well, I was running out, you know. I have uh, a common name. And on that, we don't actually. Because <laughs> we always have to say with a C and with an L and with a W. Yeah. Anyway, on that note, we will see you next time. Bye bye.